Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 20th, 2016. This is episode 1887 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because it is a Thursday and that means it's time for a listener call show. That means that all of the stuff we'll talk about today is stuff that you wanted to talk about. You picked up the phone, you dialed some numbers, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, that is the Think Line. Call in there and uh, leave, a, leave a question or a comment for me like the ones you're going to hear today. Remember to follow the basic rules, that is, call from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have at least two bars when you make that call because no one will be here to tell you that you sound like... Like that, right? So you won't know it. So make sure you have good signal. Make sure it's a quiet area. Uh, make your point or ask your question up front in the first, you know, one or two sentences and then give me your details. Your call will go better that way. What are we going to talk about today? I got a question on storing gas in cans that used to have diesel in them. I have some thoughts on automation from an Air Force Master Sergeant that are quite interesting. I have, uh, talk about an online school called K12.com. It's actually been around for quite a while. Uh, we're going to talk about how to find information and milk, make, ha, milk, how to find information and make well-reasoned conclusions. Um, we do have a listener who tried Antifuego, which is good for killing ants on in-ground wasps or uh, yellow jackets, and it seems like it equals dead wasps. And I have a way to deploy this stuff that might uh, be a little safer than the way he did it now that I've had time to think about it. A little bit more on voting in the five stages of grief as a caller calls in in the bargaining stage. And a millennial calls in to discuss prepping and the fear of failure. We'll have all of that for you and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. With that knocked out, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the big die in the end of range cattle era. We also have the second scientific revolution has begun. And we have IBM and the growing problem with the U.S. Census. And in other news, Dunlop tires for all your tricycle needs. Don, John Dunlop develops the first inflatable tire. He mounts it on a wooden disc for his kid's tricycle. <laughs> Robert Bosch ad adapts a magneto ignition system for a stationary engine. Ten years later, he will adapt a similar magneto system to fire the spark plugs on a vehicle. And the U.S. Navy signs a lease on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. It begins as a coal and repair station. And we're starting to see the world that we know come into existence, guys, uh, even though we're still over 200 years out. Um, 
Actually, it's not 200 years out, is it? It's just, uh, 130-ish years we're talking now, right? Anyway, uh, the second scientific revolution has begun is what I'm going to, uh, to read for you here today. Something fundamental in the way scientists view the universe has changed. The basic assumption about light and gravity is that they are carried along like waves on a pond. Scientists have assumed that some medium like water must exist to carry those waves. By tradition, they call this invisible medium the ether. Since presumably the Earth is traveling through this ether, it should be possible to measure a relative speed in relation to it by measuring the time it takes for a light to travel in a vacuum and going in a perpendicular directions. There should be a difference if the ether exists, but when the, uh, Meckelson and Morley take their measurements, there's no difference. They have proven that photo the photons do not require an invisible medium to convey them through a vacuum. Oh, dear God, this is like primitive man suddenly realizing that the earth is not traveling on the back of a giant turtle. What is holding it up? If light is not a wave, then it must be a particle, but it doesn't act like a particle. It is going so fast that you drill holes through everything. And what about gravity? How can that possibly work if there's not an underlying medium? The universe has just taken a flying leap into the void. They must rethink everything. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. At this point, Albert Einstein is about eight years old, so no help there. Even though I've given the impression that Mickelson and Morley have shaken the foundations of science, that is a judgment looking back in time. They did not enjoy immediate widespread acceptance, and why should they? They upset the delicate balance of centuries of pet theories and the prestige of academic leadership. You can't just throw all that away with truth and beauty, can you? To be fair, it always takes time to verify findings and then figure out what it all means. I remember the great disagreements over string theory, with several competing string theories, which one was right. Supergravity eventually pulled it all together, showing that the competing theories were actually different aspects of a larger idea called M-theory. I'm not going into an explanation, but in academic circles there are fads, competitions, and petty jealousies. The fellow who came up with supergravity had been working in obscurity for years, struggling to find grant money and trying to convince all import, all, the all-important graduate students to join him in his struggle. Such decisions can be career killers. He was finally vindicated, but watching him interviewed on TV science show, it seemed like a bitter victory. I chose this one because I want to point out that, as we all should realize by now, scientists are not a group of people who all agree about any issue. And when we're told that, no matter what the issue is, we're, we're being lied to. And when we hear there's consensus on any given issue in science, the hackles on the back of our neck should go up because of exactly this. It doesn't matter what the theory is. Like You, you guys know I'm kind of edging toward climate change here, right? But it doesn't matter what it is. When there's a generally accepted theory in science, people are squashed. People are squished like a bug for rocking the boat. And if you want grant money, if you want... Grad students, you, 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 you do work within the existing theories. If you're going to come through new theories, they have to be theories that don't disrupt the old theories. When you start going into places where you're saying the conventional belief is wrong, you're a pariah in science. It's sad, because science is supposed to be pure, and we've been led to believe that it is. It's far, far from pure, and it's far far from being pure, uh, free of politics. Just keep that in mind when you're told something like, well, science is settled on any subject, no matter what it is. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today, which, of course, is your calls for me. Let's go ahead and take our first call. Hello, Jackie boy. Uh, Brian from Michigan here. Question. I used to own a diesel truck. 
I had the Jack Spirico 12-month um, preparedness for uh, diesel. Uh, however, not owning those uh, that truck anymore, I have all of these empty cans that have a little bit of diesel in them. I want to convert them over to gas containers. Obviously, I will remark them gas, not diesel. Uh, what's the best way of cleaning out the remaining diesel, and uh, what methods do you suggest then for prepping them for use now as gasoline cans rather than diesel cans? Thank you so much for all you do. Maybe you might want to throw this one over to Stephen Harris, or maybe you might want to take it yourself. Cheers, mate. Okay, so this one's actually really easy. All you really need to do is is get those cans, you know, dumped out so nothing else is willing to fall out of them and put gasoline in them. And like you said, mark them if you have them. So, because we did the same thing. Like, you know, they they sell the blue cans uh, and yellow cans. You have blue for kerosene, yellow for diesel, and red for gasoline. And they, they charge a lot more money because that can's a different color. I, I I didn't want to spend that money, so when I was using you know the plastic cans before I really got into getting the the metal jerry cans, um, all I did was get a sharpie marker and write a great big D on all sides of the red can, and then that meant that one was for diesel. Uh, so somehow make sure they're they're marked and you know that they're gas. And if you've gone to a hundred percent gas, you can't screw it up, but someone else can. So still make sure it's you know marked properly. Most people would probably assume it was a, a gas can anyway, if it was indeed a, a red can. So um, this is how I know for a fact this is all you got to do. Many, many, many years ago, a young Jack Spirico joined the United States Army and was a diesel mechanic. And uh, But a mechanic in the Army works on whatever needs to be worked on. And the opportunity came up to volunteer for a project. And they say never volunteer for anything in the military. And I think there's some truth to that. But when I when I realized I wasn't going to stay in, and, and that was about 15 minutes after basic training was over, um, and I realized, like, okay, this is not going to be a career for me, then I decided I would volunteer for anything and everything and get as much out of the three years that I would spend in, in the military uh, as possible. And so, you know, they needed somebody to go do this special project on the other side of Panama, and it was going to be in the field for two weeks or whatever. I can get out of here for a couple of weeks. And um, so I volunteered, and I go out there, and they said to take a generator with me. So I hooked up, I think it was a 30K generator, and I haul ass out to this place, and I meet these combat engineers that I'm going to work with. And uh, uh, we're, we're doing a project that I, I think even still to this day, I shouldn't say exactly what we were doing, at least not publicly over the air. Uh, but we're doing a project, and this generator needs to run. Well, um, the civilians running the project uh, talk to me and say, basically, all we need you to do is uh, come out here every day, make sure it's topped up with fuel, and uh, start it up, run a systems check on it. If something's wrong with it, fix it. Otherwise, we don't need you at all. And I said, well, this, this, the sergeant from the combat engineers guy said that I'm with his guys now. He said, no, you're not. You, you, you don't have to deal with those people at all. Well, okay, sir, <laughs> whatever. So uh, basically, I spent two weeks fishing on the beach. Uh, and, and shooting pool and, and drinking beer and throwing darts with these, uh, these civilians that were running the operation. Um, and, uh, what happened though was I'm like, well, you know, I don't have any fuel cans or anything. I wasn't asked to do that. And uh, so we need fuel for the generator. Now, the G's generators are gasoline. Okay. So he jumps the shit of this, 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 uh, sergeant with these combat engineers that were building out this, this mock thing that the generator was running. 
and uh, they go get a bunch of fuel for me. They have like seven jerry cans full of fuel. And uh, like as soon as I open it, I'm like, this is diesel. And the guy's like, of course it's diesel. It's like, well, this is a gas generator. So all we did was just, they, they had a bunch of Humvees. We just dumped all the diesel fuel in the Humvees, gave them a good shake, and uh, filled them up with gasoline, dumped them in the generator, no problem. You, you don't have to worry that there's some residue of diesel in there or something like that. Now, if it was 20%, I'm not saying, you know, there's 20% of the can full, just throw gasoline on top. That's not good. Okay, don't do that. Um, but, but in the end, a, a little bit, I mean, think about it this way, like, There are uh, fuel stabilizers and additives and things like that 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 basically have some oils and stuff in them, and it's not going to hurt anything. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people that uh, work on uh, small engines like chainsaws and weed ears and stuff like that, some of those engines today are four-cycle and some are two-cycle. And, of course, with a two-cycle motor, you use a two-cycle oil And uh, there, there's no there's no oil in the motor, right? It, it provides its own basic oil with the, the two-stroke uh, engine. And uh, you with, with a four-cycle, of course, you don't add the, the, the two-cycle oil. Well, a lot of the small engine repair type people, right, what they actually do is they just keep fuel, all their fuel, with the additive in it. So that when they work on something and they need to drain it and whatever, and before they call the customer up and say it's fixed, and they put a little fuel in it to fire it up, it doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't hurt anything at all. Now, I wouldn't recommend, first of all, the expense, uh, and I wouldn't recommend long-term running, but it doesn't hurt anything. So a, a little dribble-drabble of uh, a diesel in the bottom of that can won't do any harm at all. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. It's JR from Oklahoma out here in New Mexico. Hey, continuing with the automation theme, let me give you some insight into how the Air Force is dealing with this. So we have the remote piloted aircraft or RPA community, and it is growing exponentially. People commonly call those aircraft drones, but either way, the pilots on the ground using line of sight or satellite uplink to fly the aircraft. These RPAs, they can stay aloft for like 24 hours without refueling. Uh, what you see on the ground is every eight hours, a new crew comes in, high fives, takes over the sortie. So you've got a fresh crew, and everyone gets a mandated rest time. And that's not something you can do mid-flight with a regular airplane. Uh, the RPA jet power fighters are on their way. They're coming. And it's funny that the fighter jocks like F-16s, F-22 pilots, and the like, um, they look down on the RPA pilots right now. The, the machismoism just never subsides, but they, they're, not, they're too naive to see what's coming on the horizon. Um, their jobs are becoming the obsolete and tables are going to flip and RPA pilots will be in high demand and these guys will be called legacy pilots one day. Um, I had a conversation with three of my friends that are all commercial airline pilots. I told them their jobs will begin to sunset in the ne inside the next 20 years. Um, all of them happen to be retired military pilots too. And I kind of explained what's going on with the RPA community and all that. Um, I think in the first 10 years from now, we're going to see it start to trickle into the cargo community. So your UPS, FedEx folks, they're going to do remote piloted airliners. Obviously, risky human life is not as good as high because we don't have passengers, we have cargo. But once that proof of concept starts gaining traction, you're going to see it start to trickle into the passenger airline industry. We'll see that inside of 10 to 20 years when that first starts to happen. And the decade after that, who knows? I mean, 
something as simple as think about eliminating flight attendants. Like what if there were vending machines on the aircraft? You know, maybe you have one flight attendant for first class and a safety officer to relay any information to the ground crew that's remotely piloting the aircraft in case somebody goes crazy, nuts, and they have to make an emergency landing. That's two flight attendants versus whatever, six that they're using now on a bigger aircraft. Um, anyways, when I had that conversation, two, three of my friends, you know, two of the three, they couldn't really handle it. They're shaking their heads. They're like, no, no. The other one kind of chewed on it a bit. So um, it's coming to all areas. And the airline industry, I think, is right for it. There's so much cost savings that go into it. Um, but we'll see that happen once public opinion starts to swing on it. But remember, there's a time that us lay folk, we weren't able to even operate an elevator. So we'll see it in all areas. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate what you do. I, I guess this is one when I look at it for now anyway. I guess there could be, like like JR says here, uh, a, a loss of jobs and flight attendants. Uh, and that's a pretty big, that's a bigger sector of employment than you'd think. And these are, you know, flight attendant is a well-paid job. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, pays well. And it, it, it allows a pretty good middle-class lifestyle. Um, but as far as the pilots, you still have a pilot. But I guess what you don't have is a co-pilot when you think about it, because if there's you know 20 guys sitting in a room flying remote aircraft and uh, something happens to one of them, there's 19 other guys right there. I mean, you, you don't and you know being a co-pilot is a well-paying job in an airline. Even it's a pretty decent-paying job, you know, on a, a, a long haul, you know, uh, FedEx or whatever. So I, I don't know if I see the direct numbers of jobs coming out of that, but maybe the, the wages. Because my estimation is that these remote aircraft are not only going to be flown by people on the ground, but they'll largely fly themselves. Because most of this, the aircraft today largely fly themselves as it is. Um, the pilot's there in case something goes wrong, right? And thank God he's there when something goes wrong. So I, I don't know. This one is one of those ones. I'm not sure exactly how it'll play out, but there'll definitely be massive changes in it. As far as military applications go, moving to your fighter aircraft being flown uh, remotely, there's a couple things going on here. There was an old movie in the 80s with uh, Chevy Chase, where they, they talked about this. This was like early 80s. And uh, it ended up being shown that there was a you know serious vulnerabilities, but things are a little bit more advanced technologically-wise. But the, uh, the remote-controlled uh, airplanes could be, uh, could be taken out by skilled fighters if anything went wrong on the ground, right? So that was an issue. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's some concern, like, you know, uh, somebody hacking the system or whatever, but they're getting better and better with that type of security all the time. But the reason it makes sense is not just not losing a pilot's life. Okay, If a pilot dies in combat, I, I hate to put it this way, but the military in general looks at losing any service member as when you go into combat, there's going to be losses. We'd like to minimize them, but that happens. But when you lose a pilot, you lose a skilled person that's not easily replaced. You lost the aircraft and the pilot, and sometimes with some aircraft you've lost two. Uh, and so it's a high. It's different than losing, let's say, uh, an infantry grunt or a cook that gets hit by an IED. 
The lives are equal to me as a human being, but I'm saying in a, from a military standpoint, eh. But even the pilot is still, you've lost a man, you lost a man. That's, 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 that's the reality of combat. However, what often happens with pilots is they're shot down and they're taken as prisoner. And now the enemy has a leverage tool against you. So not only do you save the pilot's life, you, you prevent the pilot from becoming a POW, MIA, you prevent the leverage tool that that, that implies. But there's something even more um, going on here. We have now developed aircraft that can fly beyond the limits of the human that's inside it. The F-22, which ended up you know, being a limited run and then not continued, I think this is part of why. That aircraft actually has directional jets, so it actually the, the, the afterburner jets can actually move, so that it can turn in in ways that no aircraft out there can. And the truth is, if you push that plane to the limit of what it can do, it will render the pilot unconscious. The pilot, despite all of the training these guys do to fly these high G's and all, that plane can go beyond that. If you fly the plane remotely. You can go to the limit of the machine, not the limit of the man, because the man sitting using a joystick, not much different than he grew up, you know, playing Nintendo with Sega and Xbox with. And so for the military to go to that makes a, a lot of tactical sense, even if it, if it doesn't have a direct, you know, numbers uh, approach to uh, automation. In fact, it may actually end up with more people, more bodies, but lower paid bodies. Because, you know, you're talking about keeping an aircraft in the air for 24 hours, and you can't do that with a regular uh, aircraft. Yeah, sure, but you're, now you're talking about a three-person shift to the one aircraft. So uh, not that not the pilots don't fly other pilots' aircraft all the time, but yeah, I mean, you, you kind of understand what I'm saying there. So this is an interesting one, JR. Thanks for, uh, for calling in, and I look forward to seeing you next week at the uh, TSP workshop. Hey, Jack, this is Rick in West Virginia. You know, listening to the episode on the 3rd of October, you were talking about the automated school systems, uh, the teachers that are replacing themselves. It already exists. Uh, my kids went to it for a couple of years. It's called K12.com. Um, if you've ever checked it out, basically what it is is it's an online school. They have one or two teachers that facilitate uh, discussions. They can have up to 50, 100 kids in there. It's a chat room style, um, almost like a webinar. Uh, the rest of the courses are self-directed, self-paced. Um, they send you basically every month or whenever you need it a box full of all of your books, your supplies. You know, you're doing science with uh, microscopes. They send you everything you need. The kids sit down. They can do it on their schedule. There are there are deadlines, but as long as you do it before then, it's completely um, self-paced except for the times that you have to be on with the teachers. And what they do is they get them together and they can discuss uh, the lessons and they do reviews and all of that. The good, the thing about K-12 is that what they do is, depending on what state you're in, they partner with the public schools. When I was stationed in Washington State, they actually, I could disenroll my kids and say that they were going to K-12, and it was registered through a local school in the state, state certified, and they have these partnerships with all the different states around that they work through. So if there's mandatory state testing, they have testing centers you can go to to do all of that. Um, they have uh, K-12 groups in local areas where they can get together almost like a meetup group where they can do the field trips and they can do the social stuff and they can do all the additive stuff if they want. 
Um, they go, you know, museums and all that. But it, that it already exists. It's a thing. So I just want to let you know about that. You know, uh, you talk about it could be done this way. It's been done that way for a while. My kids went to it in three or four years ago. So I just want to let you know. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, there, there's definitely some good and bad about the the whole concept of K-12. I mean, it's much better than the alternative. I'd rather have a kid using the public school curriculum without having to go to the public school. Let me tell you some things that are going on here, though, why it is the way that it is. You might think, how is it that you can get all your school supplies and stuff like that and books and everything um, when you're doing this? Because you are, you're not partnered with, you're actually enrolled in the local school. So if, if K-12 has a relationship with, let's say, where my son went, Arlington, uh, Arlington High School, and uh, when, when he went to school, if he had, uh, the, the school is called Timberview, and uh, let's say that I, I had done K-12 with him. Well, he would officially be enrolled at Timberview High School, not just Arlington School District, but a specific school. And what that does is allow the school to count the student in their student headcount and still get the money for them. I still get the money for them. Now, it certainly costs them less to support that student, uh, but they keep the windfall. So, in a way, it's kind of like getting a grant, you know, to, to, for private school, but the private school is your house. You get to use the, the resources of the public education system, but you get to have some level of control over it. So, it, it doesn't really hurt the beast at all, I guess, is, is part of the issue. And it's, it's, I think it's a survival mechanism for the public school districts that see millions of students leaving the public school. And, and saying, well, if we if we still get the tax money, if we get the stolen money for them, well, it's okay now, you know, that, that works out. But the other thing is, you're still wrapped up in the school's curriculum, and, and I think at some levels, there's there's not really a lot wrong with that. Um, I think if you look at you know the basics that we teach kids from like kindergarten through like second, third ish, fourth grade. Basic math, basic reading, basic writing. I think that's all fine. I think that's all fine. It, it's as you begin to move into more advanced states and the common core curriculum is then shoved down your throat even though you've left the, the, the system. So if it works for you, it works for you. But understand that it's still, in many ways, the state's tool. So I do think it is the evolution of public education, though that it will become an option that more and more people will take, and it's one way that the school system will try to hang on to the need for taxes because look what we're providing you. The, the problem for them is it's kind of like, okay, think about it this way. You, you walk into a, 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 a restaurant, like uh, kind of like a you know get-your-food-and-go-to-the-table type restaurant, like I'm a Panera Bread, right? You go into Panera Bread, and there's a long line waiting to talk to the two or three people that are behind the counter running the, the cash register. And um, there's one little gal standing off to the side, and she says, you can use our kiosks. And you say, well, I don't know how to. She says, I'll show you. All right? She's all happy, and she shows you how to use it, and it's great. And, and you see people starting to use the kiosks. And, oh, okay, yeah. Well, um, you're training your replacement, honey. That's what you feel like telling her. But eh, she's not there for a career anyway, so it doesn't really matter. you know. But... Once that person feels comfortable with the kiosk, when they walk into the next restaurant, it doesn't matter that it's not Panera Bread's kiosk. Well, I've used these before. 
So now I'm comfortable with the technology, and since I'm comfortable with the check technology, I'll use it wherever I find it. So as public schools start to try to survive by using leverage tools like K-12, what's going to happen is it's going to make competitive uh, pr platforms more palatable and more attractive. Well, if, if the, the public schools do this, and we've always been told what about private schools? Private schools are better. Private schools are for privileged rich kids, right? Okay, then, then what if some of the finest private schools in, in the nation decide to go online? Why would they do that? To, to make money. To make money. And say, now we're offering this for a fraction of what you'd pay for our level of education if you came to our school. And we already have universities giving away everything online for free. And you only pay if you want to get you know credit for the course and what have you. you, you, you got to start realizing the progression here. It, it's a one-way walk at this point. Exactly what it looks like at the end, we don't know. It's like Alex's history segment yesterday. You know, was it inevitable that we would end up with the iPhone? No, but it was inevitable that we'd end up with something that between 1985 and now, the like person from 1985 couldn't get their head around it if they didn't have all these years to slowly watch it metamorph. And that's that's what's coming with education. This this everybody goes and sits in straight lines and and has you know eight or nine periods a day and you take these courses in this way and you go for nine months out of here. This is a model that's well over 150 years old now, and and, and we don't use anything that's 150 years old anymore. Everything that existed 150 years ago, we have a much better version of today, except education, except education. So watch the march continue, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Hey, thanks for the show. Uh, a lot of times it seems like you say you encourage us to find our own information, uh, do our own research to support why we believe what we believe or what opinions we have. And I think that's great advice, but it, it doesn't seem like it's easier said than done. My real question for you is, how exactly do you research and find good quality information uh, to back up and support your theories? Um, you know, with the government schools and their textbooks and with extremists on the Internet, uh, it seems like it can be really hard to find, to get to the bottom of it and to find good information uh, to back up libertarian or anarchist philosophies. So that's really my question for you. I'm, I'm hoping that I can you know, really support some of the things that I that I believe through proper research. It's just hard to know where to begin. Anyway, thanks a bunch for all you do. I did leave an earlier recording, and you can go ahead and disregard that one because I don't think I did a good job explaining my question. All right, take care. Actually, either one of them would have been fine. I thought the other recording was just fine. This one was a little better, so I selected it. Um, let's start out with a fundamental reality here. The more life experience you have, the easier this gets. So it, it, it may be easier for me, you know, in my mid-40s than for someone that's in their mid-20s to, to, to come to a conclusion and be a lot more solid on it. And, and I don't say that to talk down to anybody that's in their 20s, because when I was 20 years old, I felt like I was a pretty smart guy and pretty informed and, and what have you. And we didn't, you know, my early 20s, there was an Internet, but I didn't have it yet. I didn't really get 
you know, consistent access to the internet until I guess about 1999. I think it was when we bought our first real computer and our and our first real house and kind of really, you know, other than work, I didn't really have this incredible tool that we have today. And and the you know, the internet in 1999 didn't have anywhere near the information on it. And talking about not knowing if anything was valid or not when it was all people learning to use front page throwing shit up. You really didn't know. But if you've been around and you've let's say seen, you know, five presidential administrations come and go or six presidential administrations come and go. If you've seen wars come and go, if you've seen fads come and go, if you've seen news kick up hysteria and have it fall to be meaningless drivel and nothingness and you've seen this many times, you become much more skeptical. And when you're more skeptical, it's generally easier to discern the truth from a falsehood. So I think there's, there is something to be said for that. Because part of what you have to do is you have to kind of give everything the litmus test when you hear it. My wife still, and I love my wife, but she'll say, did you see this? And I'm like, what? And she'll read me a headline from something she just saw on Facebook. I'm like, I bet that's fake. And she'll say, well, did you check it out? And I'm like, no, but they always say shit like that, and it never turns out to be true. And what's going on is Dorothy, you know, after all these years of thinking her old man is a, is a crazy nut, in the last five years since she left nursing and has had time to research things and uh, learn more about a lot of things that she didn't want to learn about, like vaccines, and when she found out that, that you know, there are lies in the vaccine industry, there are lies in the pharmaceutical industry in general, and she had, you know, spent 20-plus years believing it because, well, when your job depends on it, you believe it. Um then she's kind of woken up to all this other reality, like government and whatever. So she now realizes how she's been lied to all her life. So she has now a perception bias to the opposite, which is what happens when you first wake up. So once you realize that it, you've been spoon-fed so much bullshit for so long, anything that counters the bullshit you assume is correct. And you have to put a check on yourself with that. I would say the, the number one thing you can do, and I fall for this at times myself because, you know, it's, the, it's 8 o'clock at night and I'm looking at something on my phone and I don't completely fact check it before I share it on Facebook and, and I get on other people for that. I know I shouldn't, but sometimes I go, ah, yeah, right? Because if it, if it falls in line with what you believe, that's the, 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 the one you have to check even harder. When it, when it, when it, when it lines up with your, perception bias. You have to be more uh, aggressive in your vetting of it. But I've been amazed with how many things I've been able to disprove with five minutes on Google. And not because I found some propaganda anti-site that, that says the other side is wrong, but I mean conclusively proved like this never happened. Because here's the same picture from another story 20 years ago or whatever. And uh, while I don't think that the, the, the people that run Snoops should be, uh, Snoops should be counted on uh, 100% because it's like some fat guy, his wife, and their cat that make up the entire Snopes uh, research team. It, it, it can give you uh, a valid uh, kickback on a lot of the bullshit that you find out there. But then when you talk about things like, well, you know, I want to find information on anarchist and libertarian philosophies. And, of course, you'll find a lot of people that say it's a bad thing. A lot of people say it's a good thing. I think the important thing to understand there is unless they're asserting facts that, that are either provable or provable is untrue, those are opinions. Those are not uh, usually generally uh, asserted as facts. Um, 
with anarchy, you get a lot of misinformation about what anarchy is, but the person saying it generally doesn't do it because they know what anarchy is and they don't want you to know. That's generally what they've been taught. And that's where all of this has problems. People are out putting out information at levels that have never been, been done before, and anyone can say anything. And that's good, because that way everybody has a voice. But then it's up to you to discern the truth for yourself. So some basic rules of journalism can help you here. If, if you were to just take a basic journalism class, and I don't mean like go to college for it, I mean like high school journalism class, you would learn what they call the two-source rule. So you should be able to verify something through two independent sources before you report it as a fact. Now, there are times when journalists, for good reasons, break that rule. So let's say that you're an insider in an industry or government or whatever, and I'm a journalist, and you come to me, and you bring me documents or whatever, and I'm the only source of that information at this time. Well, I can't get a second source. Now, I, I might be able to fact check it, and I might be able to get a, a verifying source. So, for instance, I, I do have some contacts. One is a... Um, chief of staff for a United States congressman. And he has told me, if you hear something and you want to vet it as to whether it's true or not, if you call me and you tell me what it is, I will tell you yes or no. And you can trust that I'm telling you the, the true information. I believe this guy. I really do. Or I'll tell you I can't confirm that I don't know. Okay. And, you know, obviously if it's some kind of state secret or something, I might not, he said, I might not even know. But but a lot of the stuff that goes out and you see it here and there, I can tell you. But what I won't do is I won't give you information. So if you get information from somewhere else and you want to bounce it off me, that I can confirm or deny. So a good journalist takes that approach. So that's, that's the kind of way you have to be thinking. If I've picked up this information and you say, well, find multiple sources, well, I can find 80 articles about this same thing. Yeah, but a lot of times they're the same article. That's when I start to think that the information's bullshit. When I see, you know, according to an insider source, and blah, 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 and, and I go to try to find another verifiable source, and all I see are alternative news blogs, which just means some blog some guy put ads on because he wants to make money, and they're all basically cutting and pasting the story over and over again with very little modification to it. My, my bullshit detector starts going off. So in the end, I think what you, what you have to learn is you have to learn to discern for yourself based on, does that sound right? Does that sound right? Um, I'll give you a for instance. There was a, a story that went around years ago when Barack Obama first came president that he refused to put his hand over his heart during the playing of the national anthem, uh, and they showed this picture, and there's uh, military people around him with, in, in, in a salute, And he, so it looks legitimate, and he's standing there with his hands clasped. And w what it turned out to be is that the music that was actually playing when the photograph was taken was Hail to the Chief for him. Well, you don't put your hand over your heart if you're the president while they're playing Hail to the Chief for you, but someone in, in military dress may salute you at that time. Okay. So, The reason I never believe that isn't because I think Barack Obama is a true patriotic American that values... No politician's that stupid! That's why. And that's that's what you have to start using as a bullshit detector. Like, 
does this make sense? And with the two people running for president right now, I mean, we're at a point where with these two, you could imagine them saying anything. But in general, most politicians are pretty good at being politicians and you even if you don't want to do something you do it in public view right? you what Hillary Clinton said you have a public position or a private position right so and then the other thing you have to watch out for is you have to understand that there are people out there that just want glory for a minute they want to, even if it's false glory or they just want to be right and will pose as something they're not so I recently saw a reddit discussion where there's supposedly a uh, an insider from the FBI leaking uh, about how um, the Clinton whole email controversy you know what the truth is about it and uh, what was going on on the inside and what the, and a lot of the things this person was saying about where to look and what stuff was in the the leaked emails and whatever was bang on but the claim that you know I'm an insider I, I didn't buy it for a second I didn't buy it for a second and buy it for a second because an FBI insider isn't going to leak information by going on Reddit. So you just have to like always, always not just fact check, but sanity check stuff. Think about it. like if it sounds extreme, doubt it, and then try to confirm it. Rather than if it sounds extreme, believe it and then try to verify it. So take it the other way around. So so I, this sounds so ridiculous. I don't believe this happened. But I'm going to research it, and I'm going to try to prove that it didn't. And in your attempt to prove that it didn't, you may, for a fact, in fact, verify that it didn't, if that makes sense. But it's, I get this question a lot of times in different versions, and a lot of times it's, well, where do you go? I go to Google. I go to Google. And I, I begin a research, an in-depth research into the issue, and I find as many different conflicting stories about it as possible, and I try to... On some level, you do have to consider the source, and on some levels, you consider the facts. Here's an interesting uh, thing that I just learned, for instance. So for about a month and a half, I've been watching these protests, Standing Rock, they call it, these Native Americans that are pissed off because this oil pipeline is coming through their, their sacred lands. Okay, and, and the way this has been presented, and the way I've seen it presented for a month and a half, is there's this evil oil company uh, with the Dakota Pipeline, And they're running it through the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. On these, and I'm like, that's bullshit right there. Well, I should have instantly grabbed on to, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. As it turns out, the pipeline never comes within a half a mile of the border of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It goes by the north corner of it, it crosses the river and continues on. In fact, anywhere where it's remotely near Standing Rock, All the land that, that it's going on is private, and there's been agreements with the private landowners that have said, it's okay, I accept your lease, your terms, whatever, to bring it through. And now that that's you know, like kind of really boiling to the surface, what the defenders are saying is, well, it's going to go across that river, and if it spills into the river, okay, fine, but that's not the case you've been making for 90 days. You've been lying to people. And so that was one that just, I, I but I didn't cover it. And I didn't really let it affect my life. But when I looked at it, I thought, that's some bullshit. I also put it through the filter of, can I do anything about it? Well, no. Okay, fine. But now that I know the truth about it, I'll correct bullshit when I see it. And uh, I know some of you are mad at me for that one right now. But go verify it for yourself. You can look at a map. 
And you can see where the pipeline goes. You can see the Indian reservation, and you can see that it doesn't go there. It just doesn't go there. Oh, and the little girl that was bit by the dog? Yeah, well, that picture's from a girl that was bit by a dog in Texas a couple of years ago. That was fake. That's what good research leads you to. The truth. As best you can discern it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ray in North Carolina. Uh, I don't remember if anybody's called in and said they tried the antifuego on the wasp nest. Uh, fella calling back in, uh, an expert counsel ways back and asking about dealing with a wasp nest or yellow jacket nest on the ground and you said you'd like to see if it works. Well, I tried it last night and I'm, uh, very pleased with the results. There is no wasp nest there now. Uh, just mixed up a pretty, uh, concentrated solution in a five gallon bucket. Uh, put my, my brave hat on and, and there was, there was a nest in between some rocks and there was probably, uh, I think I counted probably about 12 to 15, 20 some odd wasps around it earlier in the day. I threw the, the solution into the crevice that they were flying in and out of and turned around and ran away and ran inside. And my wife asked me if it worked, and I said I didn't stick around to, to check. Um, went back out this morning, and there was uh, about 10 dead wasps still in the hole, and the rest were gone. So I dismantled what was left of the nest and uh, haven't seen any since. So I, I guess that's a success. Um, if anybody else wants to call and say if they've seen the same thing, uh, I'm going to try it again next time I have a ground uh, nest of, of some sort. So. Fantastic product the Antifuego is, and uh, thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, that, that's good to hear, and I can imagine the the the, the dump and run uh, thing, and, and it, it makes sense to me. Um, and uh, it's probably what I would have done. But when I heard you say, it, I thought, well, what if it wasn't just this little one whole thing with a you know couple wasps coming in and out of it? What if it was? Uh, a bigger problem, like the gentleman that called in originally that started this whole line of thought, where he had this huge nest and tried to dig it up with a front end loader or something and pissed them all off. Um, <laughs> how might you drench the ground really, really well with this stuff without standard? Because the best way to use any fuego on ants, and I'm sure it would be the same for in ground uh, insects of any kind, is to slowly pour it down the center of the mound so that it slowly soaks in. And, uh, and, and drenches uh, all the way down to where your queens are and kills your babies and your queens and everything underground. And, and for those that don't know, one of the main components of Antifuego is orange oil. And basically when it gets on an exoskeleton, an invertebrate, it, it melts it. So it's orange oil, uh, compost tea, and molasses. And it basically turns ants into fertilizer. And apparently yellow jackets into fertilizer as well. Well, I was thinking this is how I would do this if I had to now. I would get myself one of my seven and a half gallon uh, buckets that I use for bottling beer and making beer that has a little spigot on the bottom, and I would put it upgrade of where this hard group of insects are, and I would put a piece of uh, clear plastic tubing on it like I use, but a much longer piece than I usually use for you know siphoning from one bucket to another, and then all you'd have to do is just put that piece of hose down there and go back to the safety of your bucket and turn the nozzle on, and it would take, you know, five, ten minutes for that stuff to get all the way out of the bucket and just slowly drench in the ground. And that just seems like if you're going to use antifuego for in-ground stinging insects other than ants, something with wings that can fly after you and get you, 
that might be a good way to do it. So I wanted to add that little bit to this, but good to hear that it worked. Uh, please take another look and uh, shoot me an email and make sure you know it really did work and I uh, confirm it for me. I'd like to know. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Nick out of Nebraska. Just had a comment for you about your cathartic building comment in one of your uh, shows. Uh, what do you think about if we do the cathartic voting, but for other people's feelings? Uh, my, my idea or my thinking is that if we start voting third party and start trying to put out there that the, uh, the two party ass clowns are not going to destroy us, uh, maybe then other people will get the message and start thinking about what they do. Love to hear your comments. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye. Okay, I'm not picking on you. I'm not being mean to you, and I'm not calling you an ass clown. Okay, just to be clear. Um, but you are in the bargaining stage again. This is where we you, you you've kind of gotten edged toward acceptance. Maybe you were a little bit depressed and wanted to let go, and but said, well, "I gotta do something. I gotta. There's got to be a way." Well, it, it, first of all, let me say this. If you want to vote, I think you should vote. My wife's going to vote. I'm not going to vote. I don't have any ill feelings toward my wife. I don't sit here and tell her every day, you shouldn't go vote, honey. It's not going to matter. I have made the case to her once that mathematically your vote will not matter. But you should do what you want to do. And I'm I'm sincere with my wife, so I'm being sincere with you. So if you want to go vote for Gary Johnson or Jill Stein or the Great Pumpkin or whatever... Go ahead. But the belief that, okay, well, then we'll get, you know, 20% of people to start voting third party and that'll impact people is, is, is fanciful. And, and, and here's why. Here's why. We've had a real shot taken at third party since the 70s and it just hasn't ever panned out to be a significant margin of the vote. And where it has, I think Ross Perot, um, think Anderson in the 1980 election with Reagan and Carter. Um, all, all it has been done is it's, it's, it's been used by the side that lost to blame their loss on the, the third party candidate and, and actually weaken the third party position. Well, it, you're throwing your vote away. So the, the concept that we could get one to two percent of people to vote for Gary Johnson in the past, and maybe he'll get eight percent of the vote this time because the other choices are so bad. Um, but that's all we could get when people are voting because that's who they want to be president. But all of a sudden we can magically get a significant people number of people voting just because we want to prove to other people that you you could do something other than this two party system. It, it, it's just not going to work. It's, it's just not going to work. This is the, the big problem that people have in, in that move toward liberty. You think that most people really are like you and they're like me and they're like us. And in their hearts, they are. But in their minds, they're not. It's what they, I call the beautiful musical libertarianism. 
I remember when I first really discovered libertarianism. I had always been, in my mind, a small government Republican. I was really an anarchist, and I didn't know it. But I'd always been a small government Republican. I thought, we needed a government, for God's sakes, but would you please just leave us alone? And I always thought that the party didn't actually live up to it, but hell, they were better than the other guy, right? And I didn't think there was any other option. And I heard about this thing called libertarianism. And the first time I heard it was from a history teacher in high school. And he, the way he said it, it almost sounded like, well, that was a communist or something. Because he was talking about, well, on the ballot, you know, you have Democrat and Republican. And, you know, sometimes it'll be like a communist or a socialist or a libertarian. And libertarian sounds like liberal. And I, it, it just didn't it resonate with me. But as I, you know, kept hearing that term in my mind, I finally, well, I'll go find out what this is. And when I found out the philosophy of libertarianism, I went, that's it. And you get what you call Messiah complex. You start telling everybody. Because you think, well, as soon as they hear this, they'll, they'll be on board. Like, you don't realize, oh, this has been here for 35 years, and they weren't interested for 35 years. But, oh, they will be because I told them. And, and you, it's just frustrating. Because you start explaining to someone, like, I, uh, nah. and you're like, I must be explaining it wrong. That's what you think. You think... I understand this, but I must not be using the right words because any rational person would embrace this philosophy. Let other So you tell your, your Republican friends about it, and they're like, uh, uh, marijuana, gay marriage, uh, uh, shit. Okay, okay, I know what I can do. I can go tell Democrats about this. They should love this. The social side, oh, yeah, yeah. But then you, you, you know, let's stop taxing the shit out of people. Stop trying to provide. Oh, you can't do that. The children will starve. No, the, don't you? And you just feel like I, again, I must be explaining this wrong. You're not explaining it wrong. You're explaining it perfectly to people that don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. The average person in our country is a statist by choice. And they are so locked into it that they can't hear what you're saying. They can't take it in. They can't accept it because they're vested in it. And if the, the people who say, well, we should cut government. Okay, well, what should we cut? Well, everything. Start naming, start naming things to cut. Well, should we cut entitlements? Yeah, I don't know. Our biggest entitlement is Social Security. Oh, you can't do that. The old people. Okay, well, all right. What about the military? Oh, no, you can't. we got to back our men and the best advanced stuff. Okay, but it's one of our largest expenses. And now, so what exactly can we cut? And you'll find most people, there's nothing that they're okay cutting. Well, how do you expect us to have a smaller government if you won't cut anything? And it's not their fault. It's the way they've been taught and the way they've been programmed, the way they've been marketed to. And there's a lot of things that can break that for people. But what's what's going to break it isn't going to be Gary Johnson getting 18% of the vote. All you, whatever, this is what I'm going to tell you right now. Like, like, like looking through a, a, a crystal ball. It's, it's likely right now, unless Trump pulls a rabbit out of his hat or something, and I don't know how damning it would have to be. I don't know, maybe a picture of Hillary Clinton dropping kittens in acid or something might sway the vote. But it, 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 Hillary Clinton wins, and Gary Johnson is the blame for Hillary Clinton. That's all we're going to get out of this. That's all we're going to get out of this. Right? You do what you want to do. But you're not going to sway public opinion by voting for a loser. 
And I don't mean a loser in life. I mean a loser of the election that loses to both candidates. You know, we've never even had a situation where you're, you're, let's say you're, you're Republican or you're Democrat gets X percent of the vote. And then your third party comes in second place. And then your, your, your other primary party comes in third. That's never even happened. And if it did, again, all that would happen is the, the side that lost would blame the third party. It's your fault. They're in charge. And you go right back into the dichotomy. I wish I had better news there. But again, I just did a show this week on this. Your vote won't change things, but your actions will. Take lots of positive actions. Hey, Jack, this is Mike in Southern Indiana calling. Uh, just a couple of quick comments and a question. Uh, I wanted to say I've been thinking a lot about what you've been saying about the millennial generation, which I'm a part of. Um, and I think you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to our debilitating fear of failure. I just want to point that out as somebody that's experienced it and who, you know, fights to, to push it away and not let it stop me from doing what I want. So, I want to thank you for putting sort of a name to that beast uh, because it's definitely a real thing, and I see a lot of my friends that um, don't know that that's what's holding them back, but it clearly is. So thank you for that. Um, one question I had for you, as a young person just getting started in this field, I work in the landscaping and nursery business, and I live and work on a small organic farm. And I want, um, you know, a lot of times I'm pr trying to prioritize my purchases, um, or versus saving my money. You know, every every time I get paid, it seems like the money doesn't go very far. Um, and when it comes to things for my prep, um, I'm wondering where I should put my priorities. You know, things like a Berkey or something that I really want to buy, but it's kind of cost prohibitive for my current level of income. Uh, and I do have the desire to start saving money, but that just has not worked out so far. So I'd like to get your thoughts on sort of, The, uh, the debate between saving and spending on necessities that, that need to be bought one, one way or another. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for everything you do. I've been enjoying the podcast for a little over a year now, and keep it coming. Thanks a lot. Bye. I, those are two different things, and I, I appreciate both of them. But let's start off with the kind of the easier one, which is you know how you allocate your preparedness right now in your life. Okay, you're young. You don't have a lot of money. You, you, you're, and you said, well, saving money hasn't really worked out. We're also talking about spending money and buying stuff. So your, your first goal should be to set a target savings amount for yourself of money that is only to be used for emergencies and get there no matter what it takes before you buy a Berkey, before you buy a D cell battery. The number one thing that you need for preparedness in your life for the most likely thing to affect you, job loss, is money. You need that more than food storage. You need that more than a Berkey water filter. You need that more than, uh, you know, uh, whatever else you can come up with, fuel, what, what have you. You get that, that little nest egg, and then, you know, you can look at your life then and say, okay, what do I really need to be prepared for the most likely things like a power interruption? And you can go with the most basic things to get by, you know, a single battery, uh, battery bank, uh, inverter for your car. You probably, at your age, you're probably living in an apartment, right? So you only have so much room to store stuff anyway. Um, and then maybe move into a little bit of copy canning and things like that. But just take it slow and develop your financial stability first. 
And that's the only responsible thing to do at your age. And you're ahead of me, because when I was 22, I was out chasing girls in the bar and fortunately met my wife and got my shit together at, I think, 24 I was when I met her. Um, I didn't really pay attention to any of this kind of stuff right there. I was all I was concerned about was building a career and uh, and having a lot of fun. So the fact you're even thinking this way, that's great. Um, now let's talk about this other thing, this fear thing. It is what it is, and I finally have seen it now. Um, I've always had young people work for me. Uh, younger, I guess I should say. Uh, but when I say that, I'm talking about people in their 20s, and I haven't been in corporate America, right, since uh, 2011 when I was when I left, like 2010? Was it 2010? Yeah, 2010. And it was like January of 2010. Uh, so it was really 20, 2009 was when I, I left corporate America and I haven't had people working for me. And when I say I had people working for me, they're young then. They were 24, 25, 26 back then. So these, these young people would now be in their 30s. All right? So now, and, and you know, my son, in, in around that age, and of course my son wasn't raised like a lot of you guys in your, your, your generation were. My son was raised with a foot in his ass uh, in, in the most positive way possible. And... Whenever I saw fear of failure on him, I forced him to face it, get through it, and, and see that nothing bad happened if it didn't work. So I guess maybe he had an advantage that way that a lot of young people in your generation didn't. But now that I started hiring like farmhands and all, and I'm dealing with kids that are 18, 19 years old, um, I, 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 I can't believe what I'm seeing. You know, I have this young guy working for me, and I, I have him do something, and he doesn't do it really wrong, but not quite right, and I'm telling him how to get it right. He's like, oh, I see where I messed up. What, what, stop. I tell him, stop that. Stop that. It's always about messing up. And, and I, I don't know what's done it to you guys. I, 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 I don't understand other than... Is it the school system and the way things are done now where there's a right answer and a wrong answer and you do it specifically the right way or you're wrong? And, and the, the conditioning of that over 12, 13 years of school to where by the time you come out of school, you're in a, in a binary mode where there's a right and a wrong, and wrong is terrible. Wrong is awful. Wrong is going to mess things up. And I've met some other young people in my travels that... You know, I, I, I remember talking to this one kid a couple years ago. It was part of a group uh, that we were doing a project with. And he said he was out there interning. And he was doing it because he felt like he needed to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to you know, fit in, to, to function in the world, in life. And he was so awkward and he was so afraid. He had so much fear built up inside of him. I could just see it. And at the same time, we're having these conversations. And it goes into the whole white privilege. I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a privileged white kid from a family with means like you're not privileged you're you're out working in an agricultural environment to learn how to function as a human being how how unprivileged could you possibly so your parents have money you don't have money you're dead broke and you don't function in society but this this i think it's a combination of the this 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 guilt trip bullshit and then this fear and and I, I hope the work that I do here, you young guys that listen to me, you young gals that listen to me, you take that fear and, and just shit can that. There's just no place for it. If you're going to make mistakes, unless it's going to result in losing an eye or an arm or something like that, you know, go make mistakes fast 
then figure out what you did wrong, adjust and do it right. Many years ago, I had someone ask me, because even by my early 20s, I would, mid-20s, I would say, I was really successful for my age, especially for not having a degree. And somebody asked me one day, how the hell have you managed to get where you are coming from so little so fast? And I said, you know, one thing the Army taught me, when you're in a leadership position, whether it's leading one or a hundred, when you're leading anybody, People don't follow you so that you will not make a decision. So that you'll get to a point you say, I don't know what to do, and stop. They follow you because they know you're going to do the best you can when you get to that decision point to make the right decision, and you're going to charge forward into that decision. You're not going to push them. You're going to lead them into it. And if you, if, if you, you realize it's a mistake, you're going to identify the mistake. You're going to, you're going to go to an auxiliary, or, you know, an auxiliary plan. And you're going to go make another decision, and you're going to keep making decisions and keep advancing forward. And that was, you know, that was something I got out of the military. And when I got into a, a career, a job, no matter what it was, I always did something rather than nothing. I always tried. And if it didn't work, look around. Anybody see me? Get up. No? Okay, then it's not a problem. I'll just put it back and try something else. And it seems like the, the the young generation today isn't capable of, of having that mentality. It's not that you're not capable. You're capable. This is what I want to talk to the millennials in my audience today. You guys have so much potential. And, we, and, and frankly, us old farts, we need you to be the heroes that you can be. But you will not do it. You will not do it. By being the new hippies, right? You won't do it with that. You won't do it by inaction. You won't do it by blaming others for your problem. You won't do it by complaining about your student debts. You won't do it by feeling the burn. You're going to have to do it by figuring out what you can do in your life and in the life of people around you and freaking doing it and doing it with fearlessness. You have to lose the freaking Fear, folks. And I know I'm talking to some of you that are 80. You still need to lose the fear and you have it. But man, it's chronic with these young folks. I, 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 I'm blown away. I'm blown away with the, the concern for making a mistake. Again, is anybody, is anybody going to die? Or is anybody going to bleed? If you bleed a little bit, that's okay. You don't lose an eye, you don't lose an arm, you don't lose a finger. You know, you don't, you don't cost your employer a thousand dollars. You cost them five bucks. If you can't get over that, get a new employer. Lose the fear. It is what's holding this generation back. Because many of you are actually going on to do things you know you shouldn't because of fear. Fear of standing up for yourself. Fear that you might be wrong and maybe everybody's right. Like going to, everybody going to college. A lot of these young people are going to college because they're afraid not to. You don't go to college because you're afraid not to. You go to college because you know what you want out of it. And you know what it costs. You do a cost and benefits analysis. If I get a degree in this, it's going to cost me this much. What kind of job can I look forward to getting out of what How long does it take me to pay this back? And what are my alternatives that don't involve this? And then you make a well-reasoned, thought-out decision. And people would tell you not to listen to me when I say that. 
in academia and your parents and whatever. Bullshit. How the hell do you argue against what I just said? You can only be convinced that that argument is invalid if you are in a state of fear. If you are in a state of empowerment, there's no one that could ever convince you that what I just said is not a valid argument. And you probably said this to yourself in your head. And then you won't follow through on it. It's not just college. It's anything like that in life. Maybe you know, I really think I want to go out and do like the Appalachian Trail. Go F and try while you can, while you're young. There's an old saying, I'm beginning to understand more and more as more and more parts of my body are sore and achy. Youth is wasted on the young. Youth is a gift. It's a gift. And when somebody gives you a gift, they want you to have it. They want you to have it. It's not a privilege. It's a gift. And what some, when, when you give someone a gift, you know what you want to see them do? You want to see them use it. If you have your youth, use it. Use it to the, the maximum advantage you can. Do something with it. And don't let fear control your life. With that, we're to the end of another show. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, you can help support us by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of great discounts. I won't read the list again like I did yesterday. It's quite a long one, though. And uh, it really is how you can help support our show. And if you are a military, law enforcement, uh, Peace Corps, or a first responder, either active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you a discount code. Do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, it's still a great deal, 50 bucks a year or 5 bucks a month. Just go ahead and check it out, the survivalpodcast.com, and click on Members. The other way that you can support our show, the painless, easy way, is to do all your Amazon shopping through T-Spaz. Now, this really is painless. You go to tspaz.com whenever you were going to go to amazon.com. Then you buy your stuff on Amazon. It costs you absolutely nothing, and you support us. And every day I, re, uh, I, I do a, a post on an item on Amazon that uh, I recommend. Today's post is on the Streamlight Siege Lantern. Uh, I learned about this just a week ago from a comment on the blog here from someone who said, this really belongs in your list too. And man, I checked it out and this thing's been reviewed, uh, on Amazon over 1550 times and it's got 4.9 stars overall. I don't see many items on Amazon with that type of, uh, of a track record with reviews. What this is, it's a nice little LED battery lantern that goes into many different configurations. You can take it apart and hang it upside down and do all kinds of cool stuff with it, and it just provides light. It comes in three flavors, so to speak. It comes in a three AA cell model that maxes out at 200 looms. A uh, 3D cell model that maxes out at 340 looms. That's the one I'm recommending for 36 bucks. The the AA one's 25 bucks, and a rechargeable version with a whopping 1100 looms. But it'll set you back an equally whopping 114 bucks if you want it. Fine, D cell models the way I went. And in my article, what I tell you is if you want to have rechargeable batteries for it. Use your end loops that Stephen Harris recommends, your double A's, and you use double A's and triple A end loops, and your little end loop charger, and you're good to go. And you can buy a D-cell uh, adapter. You can put your double A's inside of it and run your D-cells. 
there's some really cool ones that Enloop makes. They look cool, but they take one battery. I got these little bitty cheap ones that I put in the article. Um, they're a double A to D adapter, and what makes them cool is you can put two double A's in one, which gives you a lot more capacity and makes it a lot more reasonable to be using, you know, double A's in a D device because it's a higher draw device. Now, this is an LED lantern. It's pretty damn efficient and you don't have to run it on its maximum looms. You, you just use it bright enough. And on the low setting, man, these things last a long freaking time. But here's the deal, right? For your, this is an item I think belongs in your blackout kit. What's a blackout kit? A blackout kit is the power goes off. Okay, now we might be dragging out the generator. We might be backing the pickup up and tying into the battery box. We might be slapping the inverter on the hood of the car and running the refrigerator. We might be doing all that and we might not. We don't know. It just went out. Is it going to be out for an hour, a day, a week? We don't know yet. What we do know is it's dark now and we need to kind of get everything in order. Right. If it's winter, we might want to throw some logs in the fireplace and get the fire going because we don't have the heat on. We might. There's a lot of things we might want to do before we worry about a generator. Right. But it's dark. Can't see. So hopefully we have our little individual lights. We carry flashlights with us. We have our power failure lights on the on the wall that I talk about, and at least we can see good enough to get to our storage room, our closet, our place where we keep our blackout kit. Our blackout kit has things in it like candles, battery, and flashlights. It's all the stuff we need to just basically figure shit out, right? One of these or two of these should be in there because these light a room nicely for you, okay? So I just think they're a great device, and they're great for camping. I'll tell you another way that I might use one of these. If I didn't have power to my duck house where my ducks live, I'd probably just hang one of these in there, and that way I don't need light on there very often, but... Man, it's better than trying to hold a flashlight in your teeth while you're, you know, hanging up a feed bucket or something. And it's just, it's there, it's light. Now, here's my other thing with the rechargeables. For your flashlights, your lanterns, anything that's in your blackout kit, what I want to know is I'm going to pick it up, turn it on, it's going to work. Just flat out. So what I do is I keep Duracell batteries in those devices. Brand new, out of package, Duracell devices, and when they get used for a while... I'll put them into a different device, or I'll run them out, or whatever, and I'll replace them with brand new ones. And I always have extra ones. There. These things tend to store 10 years. Okay, I use those first, and if the thing lasts long enough that I need to go to rechargeables, by then I've got everything set up and going. i got my battery bank going, whatever. I'm recharging my end-loop batteries, and then I switch over to those. And when then the, 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 the issue's over, then we go back to our alkaline Duracells. That's the best way to run the stuff in your blackout kit. The flashlight you keep in your nightstand, stuff like that. Don't use rechargeables for those on a daily basis. Good, long-lasting, long-storing, alkaline Duracell batteries. And I am not a representative for Duracell. I just think they make the best damn battery that there is. All right. With that, let's uh, move into our, our closing song of the day. I decided to play this one for the millennial generation. Um, you guys didn't get to be 80s kids. So you didn't get the 80s movies, and you didn't get the 80s rock music. Even the bubblegum stuff that was pretty good for bubblegum stuff. And I'd put this on the borderline of sort of bubblegum, but not. Um, this is from Pat Benatar, and the song is called Invincible. And you, you, you young people that have this fear, I need you to get a little bit of this invincible spirit in you. And uh, this movie, or the, this song was also the, uh, the, the, the on the soundtrack for a movie called The Legend of Billie Jean, which was an okay movie. It was an 80s movie, like all of them had this kind of 
shtick to them. Um, but it's a story of this, this gal who, uh, has a problem, uh, with, with something being damaged. I don't remember what it was, but she goes to get money from this guy. And instead, the, instead of paying her, he rapes her. She's like a teenager and this is like a, a grown man. And, uh, he ends up getting shot, uh, by her by accident. And they end up going on the run, her and her brother and some other kids. And, uh, it's an all right movie. But, but the attitude of, we're gonna make a run for it. We're gonna make a, a break for it. I don't suggest going out and shooting people or nothing, but there's a point in your life where you've got to say the hell with this. This is my life. I need to live it the way that I think makes sense, and I can't live in fear anymore. Be invincible, guys. All of you, not just the young guys. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.